Our readings this morning are appropriate for Easter season because they point us to the reality of a risen Christ who would be leading and working through the church, as well as seeing an example of that as Paul ministered in Athens. We're going to focus this morning on the reading in Acts because we see there in Paul a few decades after the fact where the resurrection has actually happened and Jesus has appeared to people and made himself known, Paul is here claiming that the resurrection as a fact has an important implication attached to it. And that is that in the resurrection of Jesus, we see a kind of proof, and I don't mean that in an argumentative sense, but we see kind of a conclusive evidence that God is making and will finally make the world right. This is the idea of judgment. When Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that the judgment of God is happening and will happen. Underneath that word judgment isn't simply like you're judged guilty or judged innocent. It has attached to it the sense of justice. That God is going to bring the world to rights through Jesus. And that in the resurrection you have the first fruits of that. That death doesn't ultimately reign. Although my news feeds every day seem like they're trying to tell me something different. That death seems to be reigning everywhere. And I don't mean just physical death. I mean death, destruction, evil, rancor, hardship, suffering, toil. Kind of seems like it's winning. But the resurrection of Jesus proves that no, Jesus is the beginning of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and God putting the world to rights. Now, we say this week in and week out, and maybe after this morning you'll be able to attach some more meaning to this, but at least the weeks where we're saying the Apostles' Creed, we say this all the time, that Jesus will come again, anybody remember, to judge the living and the dead. So this is precisely biblical imagination put in this creedal form, and it, it's meant to, um, it's meant to like spark a new narrative. Like, I, the, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I happened to be flipping through the channels or something, and I saw Home Alone, you know, that first movie, the first Home Alone? And it was that great scene at the end where, you know, he'd set up all those booby traps, you know, can you picture that? So if you, like, if you see that paint bucket swinging in the air or something, right, that just alerts you to that whole story. And immediately you start making all the connections to the rest of that movie. Or if you see, what was he put, like, sharp pieces of glass or something, I don't remember, inside the door. I mean, if you just saw that one scene, you would immediately then be able to knit together the rest of the story. So think now the same thing. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. That stitches together the whole story from what God intended to where this will go. And the kind of the proof or evidence of that is that God has begun to do it in the resurrection. That this is a sign of a new age or a new reality. And as Paul looks at the kind of spiritual angst that he sees around him, he begins to say to them, this unknown God is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He's, he's calling for repentance. In fact, he has set the day your text says, if you look at it, when the entire race will be judged and everything set right. So the idea here is that with the resurrection, God's new world has begun. 
and that what God has done for Jesus, he's begun to do and will complete for the whole world. And that in him is this great promise. This is not so much like a statement of fact as it is this great promise that in him and in that divine intention to put the worlds to right, we live and move and have our being. Now that's not just careful theology. That's an invitation. You can live and move and have your being in the drama of the Justice Department. And that can become your orienting reality. You can live and move and have your being in political cycles, whether in Europe or here. Or you can live and move and have your being in the assurance that what God has begun in Christ, evidenced by the resurrection, is the place in which you can live. Where this is going is not the crumbling, for instance, of the Justice Department or a lack of trust in the FBI. That this, that's not where this story is going. Where this story is going is the redemption of human work, even in all of its fallenness. And that someday where our institutions, civil, religious, educational, health, someday where all those institutions being populated by people have let us down, as the resurrection of God comes to the whole earth, as previously evidenced in Jesus, that is what we live and move and have our being in. So I want you to notice here, again, if you look at your text, it says that, you know, Paul took his stand. So I want you to note here how Paul did stand solid. And he saw the decisions that humanity would have to make. But he also stood in humble solidarity with the religious angst of his hearers. You know, it says that he noticed that they were religious, and scholars don't really know what to do with this. Like, they can't decide, is this just an observation, or is it a little sort of a poking, prodding about being a bit superstitious, or kind of covering all their bases with an unknown God? It's kind of hard to read into Paul's mind here. But at a minimum, he's seeing something that is like a spiritual restlessness in these people in Athens. And he's noticing a mistaken spiritual seeking that it's led to. And he's now trying to draw their attention in that seeking to the one true God. And so I see Paul here as kind of a pastoral evangelist, right? He's got a very clear pastoral heart to his hearers. But he also has a very clear orientation to something's happening here that's kind of pretty black and white, right? There's a kind of black and whiteness to resurrection, right? I mean, like that either happened or it didn't. And either God's got a thing going on here or he doesn't. And so, there, you know, there's a kind of particularity associated with that. So on the one hand, Paul stands solid in that. Can you feel that? Like even in all the midst of that kind of religious nuttiness, he's able to himself stand solid and stand in solidarity with them. In genuine empathy. I feel your pain. I mean, come on, of course he did. Who could have been more screwed up pre-Christ than Paul? They're just sort of ignorant. He was persecuting God's work on the earth. Paul gets what it means to be very far from God. And so he's able to stand there in the assurance of what he now knows, but also in solid, but to stand in solidarity, again, with their religious angst. He sees their spiritual restlessness. He sees the mistaken seeking it's led to, and he's trying to say, here's where this goes. And so he's adopting his message to them. He, he sees this inscription to an unknown God, and he sees, okay, this is a way where I can kind of meet them on their terms. 
Because, I mean, this probably won't be surprising, but when you're trying to have a faith conversation with somebody, you can't start with where you wish they were. You have to start with where they are. And this is what Paul's doing. You know, it's hard to know how much of Jesus's career Paul would have known intimately, but certainly, certainly we see this in Jesus. If you look at the conversations of Jesus in the Bible, he speaks to everybody very differently. To Nicodemus, oh, okay, you're a teacher of the law. And so you bring, when you bring your questions to me at night, you're bringing that question with reference to something. It doesn't come out of the blue. You know, you're thinking through Torah. You're thinking through his Jewish history. Uh, you're thinking in prophetic categories. Okay, Nicodemus, I get you. Let's talk. Oh, rich young ruler, you got a whole different thing going on. Okay, I get you. Let's talk. Woman at the well. Okay, I get you. Brutalized, hopeless, lived your whole life under the tyranny of men used and abused and discarded over and over again. Okay, I get you. Let's talk. So we can't really know how much of that Paul knows, but whether he knows it or not intellectually, the same spirit that was at work in Jesus is at work in him. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, that famous passage of, you know, I've become all things to all men. I love the way Eugene gets us in the message. He has Paul saying, I voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Did you hear that? I become a servant to any and all, whether I meet you as a religious seeker in Athens or I meet you as a, a hostile Pharisee somewhere. I've become a servant to any and all in order to reach the widest possible range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. So there's Paul's attitude. Now here's actions. I didn't take on their way of life. So Paul doesn't empathize to the point of taking on their way of life. But he says, I entered their world. I actually went into Athens, and I actually looked around the Areopolis. And I, as I walked through their streets, I noticed the pantheons of gods everywhere. And as I was walking around and noticing, do you hear here? You hear, you hear lots of residences here of the connection, I want to say, between what we think about a lot here of our spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness through spiritual practices and how those practices always involve presence and noticing and being alert, which usually hooks up to things like silence and solitude. Well, that sort of alertness is necessary to this kind of evangelism. Paul's noticing, and he's able to observe without judgmentalness. I don't mean to say he's able to observe without discerning what's real. Observing what's real is a very different thing than being judgmental. If a dentist tells you have, you have a cavity, he's not being judgmental. He's simply observing what's real. So Paul can observe what's real, that you, oh, I see this thing to an unknown God. So he enters their world and he tries to experience things from their point of view. And he says of himself, I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. And I see something beautiful here in Paul, a, a kind of a beautiful model that I think we can borrow today in our pluralistic society, a beautiful model of determined but humbly adaptive witness. I have to say that again. You see in Paul a deep humility, it's, it's a kind of willingness to be adaptive in his witness. But he's able to take his stand solidly in kind of a determination. Okay, now look at me. You have to get this. If not, nothing his saying is helpful. If there is not a God who raised his son to life, what can Paul say that's any more helpful than their pantheon of gods? A helpful saying requires what we chafe against today as a kind of exclusiveness. But you don't have to be a butt-headed exclusiveness. 
you can just take your stand and wouldn't you actually have a cavity? And let's deal with it. It doesn't have to be the kind of judgmentalness that we all fear. And so I want to take just a moment here to, to say that it feels to me like the Apostle Paul's got beaten up a lot in the last couple generations. It feels to me like he's almost like a tetherball, you know, who one side of that tetherball pole is slugging him for being judgmental and another side is, you know, slugging him for polluting Christianity and another side is saying, no, you know, Pauline theology is the heart of Christianity and we sort of even forget all about Jesus, right? I just feel like Paul's been battered now for at least a couple of generations, maybe around post-World War II kind of German liberalism and the reaction of American conservatives. And I just feel like he's been battered. And that might be a good thing for us in our own pluralistic society that's very much like Athens to just stop for a moment this morning. And what if we just tried to honor this towering figure? He was brilliant and dedicated. A follower of Jesus who was tireless in his work to communicate the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, even when it meant profound suffering. In fact, you probably can remember the story in Acts 9 when Paul's converted and the Lord sends Ananias to him. He tells Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And through you, I need to show him how much he must suffer for my name. So it's kind of fascinating to me that, you know, in our culture today, if a young girl wants to be a gymnast and Maybe she starts out three, four, five years old and, you know, she makes it to the Olympics and, you know, we do like we do in TV these days, whether it's American Idol or whatever, you know, always showing someone's backstory. So, you know, her events coming up in the Olympics and start showing her backstory. How even in fifth grade, she got up at four o'clock in the morning and was in the gym doing her thing and after school and how she followed a regimen of a diet and worked out precisely and never had friends like everybody else did, never had time for a boyfriend. And those kind of stories, they pull at us. They think, wow, that's such an amazing dedication that that young girl employed all her life and now here she is, you know, 15, 16 year olds or whatever in the Olympics. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night adrift at sea. I was sent on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in constant toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, he says of himself and the apostles, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I wonder if we can do this without guilt or shame. I, I, I don't even know if I can. Let's try. Is there anything you care about that remotely approaches that? How did this guy become a battering ball? We've maybe had never had a more dedicated Christian in 2,000 years of somebody who was expressively told that, hey, when you go out and do this, you're, this is going to be really hard. So, so yes, I'm calling you, and you're a unique person in all of church history, undoubtedly, but you need to know that election is not unto privilege. Election is unto a specific responsibility. And Paul, as you carry this out, you are going to get battered. As we pick up this story in Acts 17, Paul's been kicked out of the last two cities he's been in. That's how he finds himself in Athens. It's like the church got him out of there because... They thought he was going to get killed. So here he is, though, in Athens. I just want you to see if you can feel this. 
striving yet again to be faithful to Jesus in another strange and complex situation. Can you just feel that? Can you just see him going, oh, you know, uh, you know, texting, oh, MG, you know, that crazy face, you know. I, oh, MG, like, here we go again. Another impossible situation. I just kind of hear him saying, Lord, like, come on, you really expect me to figure out hundreds, if not thousands of years of sort of pantheistic and, and you know, pluralistic religion and all these gods? Like, like, come on. I just got kicked out of the last two cities and like, here we go again. But Paul, remember, this is what I said, was sort of a pastoral evangelist. The pastoral part of him is able to relate to them by listening, observing. And I think this quality in Paul is what funded his imagination in 1 Corinthians 9 and what allowed him to relate well to both men and women and politicians and manufacturers and artists because Paul knew precisely that you catch fish on their terms, not yours. And so you notice he doesn't like directly critique in a judgmental way their idolatry. What he does more than that is he seeks to discern the underlying hunger. So, for instance, we could easily say, oh, here, here's a core idol in our culture, consumerism. Well, you wouldn't see, if you, if you happen to meet the Apostle Paul at a Starbucks, you probably wouldn't experience this. Bad dog, no consumerism. What you'd probably experience is, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your deep desire for fulfillment and how a new pair of jeans is probably not going to get you there. Let's, can we just talk about that? Can we just kind of unearth not the idol, not a guilt around it, but can we just talk about the human angst underneath it? And what if there is a fulfillment for you in the risen Christ and the inbreaking of God's new world through him? Like, what if that's an avenue to fulfillment? Can we consider that? Or maybe think of the idol of misuse of power. And you might have Paul asking you, well, how is it that you've come so much to strive for security? Can we just begin to notice what prompts the insecurity in you such that you're willing to engage in harmful power over to others to medicate your own insecurity? Paul would dig below the idol itself, and he does this through careful listening. And I want to say that this careful listening is wisdom. It's love, it's generosity, it's hospitality, it's space-making, it's not compromise. See, most of us in this room were taught that to do evangelism means to sort of assume a hierarchical a, a privileged position, at least, if not hierarchical, that gives us the ability as the, one who, the ones who have the answers then to speak down to everybody else. And, and Paul, in that sense, and I'm using this word sort of in a unique way here, in that sense, Paul's an egalitarian in the sense that he puts himself on the same level of politicians and mathematicians and maids and everybody else, and he's then able to sort of be with them in whatever their religious angst is. But again, he's not just with them empathetically. He's also standing in a reality of the resurrected Christ. So he says, look, in times past, God sort of forgave this ignorance. But I got to tell you, we now know for sure that there is a God. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus has settled this for all of us. And this news might not have got to Athens yet, or it might not have been persuasive, but this is what's real. But you see, when we think of evangelism today, in times past, we assume that people listened their way into faith. And if people were listening their way into the faith, right through apologetics or evangelistic preaching, then that meant we played the role of a talker. 
But today's seekers, at least in my view, are mostly talking their way into the faith. They need to tell their story. They need to reveal their questions. They need to talk about their church hurts and make their comments. And then I want to say that places us in the role of listening and hearing and connecting. But again, this doesn't mean that we, we in, that, in that empathy, lack clearness. And I think furthermore, I can't just commend listening, hearing, and connecting. That they themselves raise a challenge. That these, these things, listening, hearing, connecting, have to be qualities of being before they are evangelistic tactics. If they're not, they will be seen as empty or at worst, deceitful forms of manipulation. But if they're real, come on, just track with me here for a second. If they're real, if they're born out of Paul saying, nobody was wronger than me, nobody was more spiritually screwed up than me, I get you. Let me connect with you. Let me hear your heart. Like, maybe you're not even sincerely religious. Maybe you just live in Athens and there's all these gods around you and you don't even give two hoots about them. Okay, let me hear you. I don't want to assume that you're maybe loyal to one of these gods or something. Let's, let me just connect with you because I know what it means to be profoundly religiously screwed up. So see, when a listening, a hearing, a connecting comes out of that, it has not just a sincerity but a realness to it that the Spirit can use. But again, we need to say that's just one side of the coin. On the other hand, Paul was, had kind of a boldness, right? He took his stand, as the Scripture says, in the open space, at the Areopagus, and he lays out from them, again, this, the thing that's unknown to you. It's now known. Let me tell you about it. And how it requires a radical life change. That you turn from your idols. That you abandon the caricatures and distortions of the gods that keep you from the knowledge of the one true God. Right? That makes sense. You can't stay in that and become a follower of Jesus. That requires a choice. And so you're going to have to turn from your idols and abandon these caricatures. And and walk out of these distortions and follow the one true God. And you can see how Paul presses for a decision. This is important. God has set a day when the entire race will be judged and everything set right. And we know this is true because he has already appointed the judge who's going to do it. And he confirmed this before all of us who've been waiting for this Messiah generation after generation. He confirmed it to us by raising him surprisingly from the dead. So again, these are Easter readings because the resurrection is the assurance that God will one day Put the world to rights. And it's in the humble but really conscious notion of that, in that reality that we stand in our sufferings as Christians. And that's also the basis of the reality in which we can take our stand in our culture as listening based evangelists, as those who can discern the hearts of those with mistaken views of God and help them see the one true God who has revealed himself in Jesus. Don't think I can do this anytime soon. But man, well, I would love to discern the heart of Bill Maher, just as an example. Or I'm a little tired, just went out of my head. A famous atheist that's written a lot of books in the last 10 years. Uh, Somebody help me here. Yeah, I just, like, I just love, like, I don't want to just bash Richard Dawkins. I can't actually do it, but you're feeling me here, aren't you? I wish I could, like, discern his heart. Like, Richard, how'd you get here? What's really going on here? Maybe, what are you afraid of? I, you know, I don't know. But you see, that's the vision here. The vision here is an evangelism that's rooted in the discerning of people's hearts through the Spirit so that we can see what's really going on. 
And this is both important and difficult for us because we, you need to note that we're not in the position of Paul. Paul was saying fresh news to a people who actually lacked information. They were ignorant, not that they were stupid. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid. They were just not knowledgeable of the facts. So Paul, in a sense, is actually doing gospel. He's telling this new good news. We're not in that position. We're in the position of living in a society in which people have rejected religion and are doing it more and more and more and rejecting Christianity and rejecting God and re rejecting church and not so much rejecting Jesus, but he's certainly not a big part of anybody's lives. But what I want to say to you is even in that reality, there is always an underlying story. I mean, I've seen this more times than I can count. The five years that I was president of Alpha USA, you know, the evangelism course, I saw this all over America. I heard stories from Alpha leaders hundreds of times all over America that as they sat around a table after hearing a talk like, who is Jesus or why did he die? And people started to unpack their heart. We heard over and over and over again. Well, my uncle was the pastor's best friend. And everybody knew that my uncle had a basement full of pornography. But he and the pastor, you know, played golf every week. And, you know, everybody knew my uncle used to cuff my aunt around. And I'm just over it. Or my dad was a youth pastor and had an affair and blew up the church, blew up my family over and over and over again. They're not always that dramatic, but over and over and over again, I would say 90-some percent of the time, there's a story behind the nuns and the duns, and I'm over it. There is always a story. And this is why banging on first and foremost about apologetics doesn't get anywhere. I'm not down on apologetics. They're enormously important, and they will always come into the picture. They just don't come into the picture today firstly. See, in a sense, Paul's doing apologetics. God, God raised Jesus from the dead. We saw it. We know it. Well, that worked when that was news. But when that's been rejected, one has to find the underlying like vibe, feeling, motive that caused the rejection and then say, let's go there. Let's talk about that. And this is why I think evangelism today requires that combination that Paul has of standing with people in empathy while also taking his stand in truth. So to come to our quiet time this morning, as you bow your head and have a moment of stillness, stilling not just your body, but stilling your mind and soul for a moment, as we consider these Easter readings and consider the resurrection, how might this story this morning help you take your stand? How might it infuse you with a confidence that God is putting the world to rights? Or maybe for you this morning, you want to sit for a few moments with the notion of how can I learn to stand with others in an empathy born of love, not of compromise?